everyone, I'm Christina, and this is the Broke Girl Society Podcast. I hope you all are doing well. Um, I myself have been doing okay lately. Um, I'm coming up on a year. I'm getting, I'm getting a little nervous, and I'm getting a little excited. So um, I'll probably just do an episode for my, for my one year. It's just, it's, it still kind of blows my mind that it's, I've been doing this for this long. <laughs> Um, okay, so today's episode we have Dave Yeager, who is the host of the Fall In podcast. And what's so great about Dave's platform is he he truly has a passion to help those struggling from gambling harm who are in the military or past military. Um, and he's just a really he's a really nice guy, and it was a great conversation. Uh, we stuck mostly to you know his story and and help in the military, but then I did kind of get sidetracked on like early education stuff. So I'm going to apologize for that right now. Um, but anyway, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Let me give my shout out to Gamban for sponsoring the podcast. Um, if you are struggling from online gambling harm, they are a great resource. Go to their website, gamban.com, download the software, and it will block all those sites, especially with the Super Bowl coming up. It would be be a really great thing to do to kind of put that blocker up and, and give you some time to figure out what your next step in recovery is going to be. So, um, as always, if you guys want to reach out to me, you can find me on the social media platforms at brokegirl.cr or the Broke Girl Society, uh, or you can email me at brokegirl.cr at gmail.com. I really, really appreciate all the messages I've received, um, everybody that I've met through this community. So, so don't hesitate to reach out if you just, even if you just want to share your story with somebody, you know, reaching out to me doesn't mean I'm going to beg you to come on the podcast. It just means I want to connect and, uh, you know, sharing our stories. So, all right, enough of that. Here's this episode. All right. And we are here with Dave Yeager. How are you, Dave? doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it's so important to talk about, you know, just different diversities, different, different lanes in this community of recovery for gambling addiction. And I love the fact that you focus on military. So do you want to share with us a little bit of your story? Sure. Yeah, no problem at all. So in 2001, um, Right after 9-11, I'd come down on orders to Korea. And at the time I was married, I had two young children who I had to leave behind in the States. Um, the relationship between myself and my ex was not, she's now my ex, uh, was not perfect at the time. We had been arguing and everything else like that. So, you know, I, I left for Korea in November uh, 2001. Um Flew over there, got down in the ground. I was stressed. I was angry. I was missing my kids. I was kind of a mess. Um, got into the country. I was tired too, because now we're at a 12 hour difference. So, you know, I, I was just, I was a train wreck. <laughs> Hit the ground there, got carted off to Seoul, to the base in Seoul, and put up in a really nice hotel. They actually have a really fabulous hotel on that base in Seoul, and was walking around, not ready to sleep. I had already eaten. I'm just tired, but not ready to sleep and walked around and lo and behold, I find this room that looks like a casino style slot room, um, right on the base, right in the hotel. So I'm like, okay, we'll sit down and kill some time. I'm not ready to go to bed anyway. 
Um, and I had had, I mean, I'm, I mean, I live in Pennsylvania. I'm not far from Atlantic City. And when I was in my 20s, I used to go periodically to Atlantic City. And it wasn't a big deal for me. I could take some money, go play, and then come home. So I thought, okay, I'll take some money out. I'll sit down and I'll play. And as I was sitting there and playing one of the slot machines, I made probably the biggest mistake a budding compulsive gambler can make, and I won. Um, and it wasn't a break the bank jackpot, but it was enough that in that moment, and I can remember it as I'm sitting here telling you, and I, every time I tell this, I can always remember the feeling. It's so weird um, of the feeling of just all of that stress and all of that load and all of that junk that I was carrying around with me just kind of melted away in that moment. Um, I, I always say that I'm convinced that that's the moment that my addiction started to take hold. Um, I won't say it was a snap of the finger. I wasn't instantly, you know, physically addicted, but over the course of that year, while I was in Korea, that addiction did develop. Um, it got worse. I found myself on Saturday, I'd go to the, cause every, all of the bases had the slot rooms on them. So I found myself on a Saturday when I had the day off, I'd go and I'd, uh, you know, I'd hit the room. And then I found myself on a Tuesday night doing the same thing. And then I found myself Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night doing the same thing. And then the next thing I know, every, every time I get some time, I'm in that room. And then, and, and I was at the time, I was the uh, non-commissioned officer in charge of my unit. So then right in the middle of the day, I would say, oh, I've got a meeting to go to. And I would run over to the slot room. Um, Fast forward that year, it got to the point where, you know, I was so hooked that I started to send messages to my ex to say, hey, I've got somebody, a soldier in trouble here. Send me some extra money to borrowing money from my subordinates to then stealing from my own unit. Um, and as a non-commissioned officer in the Army and anybody who's listening to this who happens to have been a non-commissioned officer in the military, you know, that's just not that's a no, no. You don't do it. Um, and I knew it, I knew it, but I was so driven by how it felt when I went to that room, you know, that I just had to do it. I felt like I had to do it. Um, so eventually I got, you know, they found out and then I confessed to it. I immediately said what I had done. And of course it wasn't a whopper amount. So I did give it back right away, but I got in trouble. I lost rank. Um, you know, finished my time in Korea, came back to the States. Um, it, it quieted down for a while, but then it flared back up again and got just as ugly as it did as it was in Korea. And I, again, found myself stealing from my unit um, to the point where I, I, this time I got kicked out of the army. Um, I got myself put out. Here's, here's the weird thing. The whole time this all of this was happening, my evaluations as a non-commissioned officer, with the exception of that quote unquote character flaw, as they put it, I was doing great. All of my numbers were high. I was doing really good things from what they were telling me. I was getting great evaluations. I remember a commander saying, I don't know why I have to do this, but I have to put you out, you know? And he says, I wish I didn't have to, but I have to. And, and the problem with that was is that nobody really knew what to do with me. You know, nobody had any idea what to do with me. I remember seeing mental health counselors and because of my position, I was on different types of bases. So at the time I was on a Navy base. So they had me in front of this Navy officer who happens to be a therapist and she's talking to me, but she, 
you know, I think back and I didn't know, I didn't know how to approach all this. I didn't know what my problem really was. I mean, I knew I wanted to gamble, but I didn't know that I was a compulsive gambler. I just knew that's what I wanted to do, but nobody would tell me that, you know, they, they send me to a drug and alcohol counselor. They send me to a mental health specialist and they talk about my family and my childhood and all of this kind of stuff and my military experience. And, and that's all well and good, but nobody ever hit the nail on the head with me. And, and I just wonder that if some, it's, you know, at some point during that time, that somebody had said to me, you have a gambling problem and here's what we can do, or here's what you need to do. I wonder if it would have been different, but I, I can't change that now. You know, I can't change it. Um, so fast forward, I did find myself out of the military during that time, as I was being processed out of the military, my, my ex also separated from me. Um, she at the time was living in South Carolina. She wasn't even living with me. I was in Texas and she was in South Carolina. So I found myself driving right past her back to Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. And for the next few years, it just, it got worse and worse. I mean, I went through multiple jobs, not because I lost my jobs. I just quit because it interfered with my time to gamble. Um, you know, got my, found myself in and out of, of, you know, psych hospitals at the VA because of that, by that point, I had had two or three attempts on my life already. Um, because I just felt like I was so deep into this thing. There was no way out. Like I could not get myself out of this thing. Um, and I can remember one, <laughs> one event I had gone to a casino. I brought a an amount of money with me. It wasn't an overwhelming amount, but I brought it to the casino with me and I spent 36 hours straight in that casino. Um, I got myself up. I probably tripled, quadrupled what I had and ended up walking out of there with nothing. Um, I drove back. I took every, I had a whole bottle of antidepressants. I took the entire bottle of antidepressants, ended up putting myself into a civilian psych ward at a hospital because, you know, and then of course I had to drink charcoal, which was lovely. Um, spent overnight, woke up the next morning, realized there was a paycheck in my mailbox, signed myself out of that hospital against medical advice, drove back, took the, took the, the check out of the mailbox, drove back to the casino the next day. Um, you know, that was the level of sickness that I had reached by that point. Um, and I was looking, I was, I was going to the VA and, and seeing a counselor there who was just drawing circles on my beliefs. And I, I could sit here and I can remember the conversations. Like she's sitting there and she's drawing these circles. And I'm like, what does this have to do with me? You know, what does this have to do with what's going on with me? Okay, break apart what I believed as a child, but tell me why I'm gambling right now. You know, tell me what I can do right now in this moment. And then finally, somebody at the VA handed me a packet of papers about a program in Cleveland for veterans dealing with gambling issues. Um, so I'm like, okay, I followed up and thank goodness I got a hold of somebody. They screened me. They got me into the program. This was in 2007. Um, they got me into the program. It turns out the VA's gambling treatment program in Cleveland is the oldest residential gambling treatment program in the world of any type. Huh. Um, it was started in 1972 by a gentleman named Dr. Custer who also was the guy who helped start the, um, you know, who, who was, he was integral in helping to boost Gamblers Anonymous. He helped with the formation of the National Council on Problem Gambling. He was just so intimately involved in gambling treatment. It was incredible. I never met the man. I just know he's the one who started the program. Um, you know, I got to work with, 
I got to work with a therapist and, and I'm just going to say her name on here. And I'm sure she doesn't mind it, but I got to work with Dr. Lori Rugel, um, who now has long left the VA. She's out of that doing her thing on the East Coast, but she was one of the most phenomenal human beings I've ever met. I also got to work with Dr. Heather Chapman, um, who to this day still works at the VA gambling treatment program. Um, I walked out of there feeling like within, I'm going to say within a day of being in that program and being introduced to the people there, I finally felt like somebody got it. Um, I finally felt like somebody understood me. Um, While I was there, they made me go to my first GA meeting. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to go to this cult thing and sit down and hear a bunch of people say, hey, how you doing? And I sat down and started listening. And that's all I was going to do. I was going to listen. Well, I started listening and probably within 10 minutes, I'm like, hey, how do they know me? Um, And then the next person started to speak and I'm like, hey, how does this person know me? And then all of a sudden I felt compelled to do the same thing and start to talk. And that's the point where I realized you know, it took me a lot longer to realize the true value, but that's where I started to realize the value of connection with other people. So, you know, I did get into GA while I was in Cleveland. I stayed with my treatment while I was there. I was in Cleveland for two years. I stayed for my initial treatment. I stayed for my aftercare treatment. I got an apartment there with the fellow recovering gambler and, you know, stayed for a few years and then ended up back here in Pennsylvania. Um, What I didn't realize was because during this time, I was feeling better. I was feeling like myself. I felt like my feet were under me. And all of a sudden, I, I, you know, I said the three words to myself that were my devastation eventually, which is I got this, you know, I don't need that meeting anymore. I'm doing good. I don't have to go back there. I'm doing great. So, so that's what I did. And as I got back to Pennsylvania, I stopped going to meetings. I stopped talking to counselors and I stopped doing all that stuff. Meanwhile, I went out, I got a job, I built myself back up. I felt like I was good in my recovery. And in, in, during that time, I, I reconnected with the woman who is my wife now, um, who I actually dated in high school. That's a whole other story for a whole other time. <laughs> we, we dated back in high school, we reconnected and, and we got married back in 2014. Um, And that relationship was wonderful with the exception of the fact that during this time, slowly but surely, my addiction was building back up. Um, But it was kind of, it was weird because it kind of manifested itself in a different way, Um, which is, I, I, my addiction this time was more manipulation of money than actual physical gambling. So what I would do is I would take out a credit card so I could buy extra stuff for her without using our money you know, our household money. But then I'm like, Ooh, how do I pay this credit card off? You know, cause I don't want her to know I took the credit card out. So then I would go out and I'd take a small loan to pay off the credit card. Well, now how am I going to pay off the small loan? So then I'd go and take another loan to pay that loan to pay this loan. And I'd started just, meanwhile, I was periodically gambling to try to make that money back, you know, but there was a feel, there was almost a feeling of excitement of not being caught hmm. um, that went along with it. You know, and I think that's where the kind of the gambling mentality came back in, you know, was kind of that risk um, for me. But it got it got really bad. It got to the point where I went online and I started finding some of these, quote unquote, philanthropists on online that were giving away money. So I thought, oh, I can get one of these guys to give me money back and I'll pay all my debts. Well, lo and behold, I got in with the wrong sort of people and I ended up getting scammed for several thousand more, which put me even more in the pit to the point where. At the end of 2019, 
the very end of the year. It was January 3rd of 2019. It was a Friday afternoon. I, I got done work. I'd been by that point, I'd been carrying a knife around with me. And I already decided that if she had discovered what I had been doing, I was going to walk up to the back of my property and cut myself and just be done. So I've been carrying this knife around for probably a couple of weeks. Um, so I sat down on my couch on that Friday afternoon and I just pretended to be sick for the entire weekend and thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. Cause I knew I was done one way or another. I was done with what I was doing. Um, and, and again, I tell this story often, but it just, it, it's, God is my witness. It's the truth. I'm, as I'm sitting there on that couch over that weekend, Morgan Freeman's voice comes into my head from Shawshank Redemption and says, get busy living or get busy dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kid you not, it was, <laughs> I can, of course, he's the narrator of life and I could hear his voice in my head. And I'm like, you know, I guess it's time to get busy living no matter what the consequences are. So that Monday morning, I checked myself into another VA into uh, a psych acute, acute psych center. Um, I told my wife everything that had happened, nearly everything that had happened. It took a while for me to, to fully, fully confess. And that's a, that's another part of the story. But then I, I got, I started to get some help. Um, I went back through the gambling treatment program in, um, in February to March, February and March of 2020. Um, got myself back into GA. Um, you know, I, I did struggle a little bit because there was a piece of my debt that I didn't tell. I told her just about everything that was going on with me, but there were pieces of like my debt and thing I had left behind. So it created more issues with us because I was still withholding information. I was still holding back. You know, there still wasn't that full disclosure. And that's the weird thing about this addiction. It's it's so, and I'm just going to say it, it's so easy to hide. Um I would leave work every day a little bit early so I could check my mailbox so that nobody could see my, my credit card bills coming in the mail that, that nobody knew I had, you know, um, there's no, you know, walking around stumbling drunk. There's no, you know, I'm, I'm passed out on the floor. It's just, you know, I was able to walk around and present myself as completely me. (laughs) Meanwhile, inside my guts are ripping to shreds and my brain is falling apart, but I could present myself as, Oh, I'm doing great. Everything's good. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I know you understand. I absolutely. That. <laughs> 100% do. You described that and that's exactly my life. Right. It's so easy to hide. So, so fast forward, I get through the gambling treatment program. We get through that phase where I did finally fully come clean. Um, I, I, meanwhile, I had become part of a online problem gambling support group, which I know you're also fully aware of. Um, yes. And, you know, I, I got myself into GA and I got back to doing something that I had found a few years before when I had written my book. I wrote a book after my first time through addiction. And that book connected me to a bunch of people who got me started in telling my story, um, which even during that in-between period where I was kind of falling back into my addiction, I can't tell you how at home it felt for me to be able to tell my story. You know, So I decided to get back into that. Um, I started to tell my story again. And through that, I met, uh, you know, Brian who runs the all in podcast. And I, he had had me on for a few times to do, um, these group meetings that he was doing weekly. And afterwards, one time he and I were sitting there and he, and, and I said to him, listen, I said, can we do something like this for military? Because 
you know, I'm super focused on the military. And the reason why is for what I just told you a little bit ago. Nobody knew what to do with me. And that's still the case. It's still what's going on out there is these guys are struggling and, and they don't know what to do. They're lost, you know. So I said, can we do one of these just for them? And Brian's like, oh, yeah, we're all over this. Let's do it. <laughs> so from that, Fall In was born, which is the podcast for military service members and veterans. Um, so I got started doing that. Um, I got back to speaking for different occasions. I got back to advocating, you know, and I feel at home again. I feel like I'm me. In the meantime, I used some education that I had, I had done. I had started a master's in social work. Um, and got myself a part-time job working at an addiction treatment center because I decided, well, and I already knew this was going to happen. And if I was going to stay in my marriage, I had to pay my own gambling debt off. There was no way we were using our family money to pay off that debt. So I was blessed enough to be able to find a job at an addiction treatment center. Um, now they're a drug and alcohol addiction treatment center, but over the past year and a half, I've been able to have them implement both a veterans treatment, a veterans group, and a problem gambling awareness group. Um, so now I get to work with veterans and I get to work with problem gamblers. And, you know, it's, again, it feels like home. And the one difference between this and what I went through the first time is that I stay connected to this recovery. I stay connected to the people who are also going through this with me. I stay connected to the fact that if something comes up for me, I talk about it and I say something about it. You know, I'm more willing to be a little more vulnerable with who I am and how I'm feeling and some of the things I was afraid to talk about for probably the better part of my adult life. You know, I feel more grounded than I ever did. Um, so it's, it's, it's a super cool feeling. It's kind of developed over time, which is different from my mentality before, which was I want to snap my fingers and have my life be completely different right now. This is more of a, this has been a gradual development and a gradual growth. Um, but I look back and I'm like, wow, how different is today than it was, you know, just over two years ago. How different is it? It's so cool. <laughs> it is. It is. I still, I still have those moments. I'm uh, just about 11 months in and it's still just like looking at myself from, you know, even a year ago, you mm -hmm. know, it just, just the difference of the way I even just look at things in general or experience things in general. Uh, yeah. And you're, you're just over two years, right? Yeah. January 6th of 2020 is my, the date that I use. Yep. That's great. Mine's March 6th. So. Oh, good. Yours is coming it up. It is coming up and I'm, <laughs> I'm looking so forward to it. I, I think, you know, for some people counting the days or keeping track of the days isn't important. They're just like, I didn't gamble today. And that's, that's fine. Whatever your recovery mm -hmm. needs to look like for you. Great. For me, it's just for, I'm still kind of hung up on those numbers a little bit. Like I just, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of every mm -hmm. day I gambled for 15 years. So, mm -hmm. you know, the last seven of those years being very destructive and, and mm -hmm. life-changing for me. And so for every day that I didn't gamble, it's just like, a little mini celebration of life, you know, because that's just one, one more day I actually lived life instead of escaped it. So, yeah. And I think that, I think that's important that for each of us, that, that nobody should dictate how we celebrate our recovery. You know, we are the, we, each of our addictions was unique, even though a lot of the thoughts and the feelings are similar and we can connect with them. Each of our journeys is unique. So each of our recovery journeys should be unique too. I mean, 
you know, there's some common threads like like being able to tell on ourselves and, and say when something's coming up or, you know, those anniversaries, that year comes up, that two years comes up, that three years comes up. There's some common threads, but what we do day to day should be our choice. Absolutely. It really should. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, and I tell people that all the time, like some people are like, meetings don't work for me. That's fine. Find something else that does. Um, connection, I think, works for everybody. Uh, I think that's right. something... Right. that everybody should focus on is connection. Um, and he, here's one piece that if I can, just for sure. a second, it's, it's interesting you said that because if you look right in the yellow book for the 12 step program, it says this is a program of recovery. It doesn't say this is the program of recovery. This is, this is a program. And you're right. Not every form is going to work for everybody. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, that's why I was so empowered to do a podcast for women. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, it's another connection that we have because Brian was my inspiration for this because he was the first podcast I found um, talking about this addiction. But, you know, and I'll tell I tell him to his face all the time. You're a dude talking to dudes, you know, like I'm I'm a woman and I wanted to hear voices and of women struggling with this because in the in the online communities, there's a lot of go to meetings. It worked for me. It worked for you. GA program will save your life. And it will. Right. I will never discount yes. GA. I am an active member of GA. Um, As am I. But I also work at 12 steps from a completely different workbook. I don't work them through mm-hmm. GA. I work them uh, with a sponsor, but we work them from, from a different workbook. I attend right. the same problem gambling meeting that you do, um, which is great because it's topic-based. So it's not, right. it's not just like the same kind of things. So I think you know, when I see that in the meetings, I get so infuriated because I'm just like, don't tell people that that discourages people when all you're doing is yelling at them and going, go to meetings. It will, it will work for you. It's like, maybe it won't, maybe it won't. So let's offer some different things. You know, let's talk about podcasts. Let's talk about uh, YouTube videos. There's so many YouTube videos out there. And I'm not just saying that because of the bet free life. I'm saying there's so many out there, people talking about this addiction. Yes. There's books, there's communities, there's so many different ways. And so what's so wonderful about having you on is just talking about help for, for people who are, like you said, uh, in the military or have been in the military. Um, you know, one of the things I, I gathered most from your story is that the military it's it, gambling addiction is like non-existent in their, in their verbiage, right? Like it's dealing with, they, they have programs, they have established programs for drug and alcohol. Um, there are, there are, I don't want to say clearly established lines, but there are definitely established lines that if, if, if an addiction to drugs and alcohol is not serious enough, you know, it's not extremely serious. And there's a chance of this person getting into treatment and and being able to salvage their career and their lives. They have a track to be able to do that for these guys. Right. Which is wonderful. Right. Now there are some people who are so far along, they can't help them anymore. So they, they basically chapter them out of the military. And I understand that because they have a mission to do. They have a job to do, but there's certain people that they can take and say, okay, let us work with you to get, see if we can get you back on your feet and back out in the field. Um, for gambling, there is no, that's, it is not a gambling problem. It's a money problem. And it is, it is a uh, threat to readiness um, period. You know, you're threatening our, our ability to be ready to perform. So you have a money problem, either fix it or we're going to kick you out. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And I've been separated from the military for a lot of years. So I won't say that that's from personal experience recently, 
it was my experience when I was active duty, but I've talked to enough people who are either recently separated or still active duty in the military to know that that's pretty much still the mentality. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I think that's the mentality across a, lo- a lot of the addiction lanes, um, you know, is, and I know just from being so active in the community myself and, and being um, an ad- advocate, I guess is what we, mm-hmm. what I'm calling myself. Um I see it's growing. There, there's a movement, you know, of like people bringing in more resources, people talking about it more, um, podcasts popping up, you know, just like more, more voices are showing up. But, but I would say too, we still have a very, very long way to go. And how, how is the best, how is the best way do you reach uh, somebody who like in the military or, or somebody you reach them and you let them know that there's help available when they're not finding any help or resources. Yeah. And, and that's the thing right now in this moment, it's the things that we're doing right now. Like, like what you and I are doing right in this minute, it's, it's putting this information out there and telling people that we're here, you know, telling people that there is help available. Um, because you know what, one of the, it's kind of a two prong process, but the part one is what we're doing right now, which is putting information out there, letting them know they're not alone, giving them resources outside of the military that they can reach out to. But part two is, is true advocacy is, is, you know, working tirelessly to get the department of defense, to get the department of the army, Navy, Marine Corps, space force, whatever it is to say, okay, yes, we need to increase our education about, even if all they do you know, because military service members and anyone who's active duty can tell you this, they go through multiple, 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 multiple trainings every year on things like, you know, sexual harassment, on consideration of others, on there's just a bunch of training they required. It's mandatory training they have to go through every year. Why can't you throw in a 15 to 30 minute training on these are the signs and symptoms of a gambling problem, right? Right. Because they talk about alcohol. Before every, you know, they do safety briefings before people go on vacation or leave and they say, or, or a long weekend, and they'll say, this is the danger of alcohol. Stay away from, you know, if you find yourself getting drunk, get a ride home. You know, how about if you find yourself in the casino longer than you had planned, say something to somebody, you know? So it's a two-part process. It's what we're doing here to spread the word and make it more, you know, known that this is an issue. But then it's a, it's going after the people who can really make a difference and saying, look, just put a 10-minute training into your, into your quarterly training and say, these are the issues with gambling. Train your leadership to recognize the signs of problem gambling and then put some screening and treatment plans in place. Even if it's referring them to an outside organization to get treatment, get them treatment. Absolutely. You know, give them the opportunity to be treated because what's happening is careers, families, and lives are being destroyed right now because it's being ignored. You know, because there's blinders on right now saying, no, no, we don't have a problem with this. When the reality is we know that they know this is a problem, right? Right. The Department of Defense has access to the same information and a lot more than we do, than than you or I do. Am I I wrong about that? No, (laughs) absolutely not. In all likelihood, they very much know that this is a very real problem. But for some reason, it has not reached the level there where they're willing to step into it yet and say, okay, now we need to address this. There's going to come a time they're not going to be able to ignore it anymore. And I think that time is going to be sooner rather than later, right? Yeah. 
what we're working to do is try and push up that timeline and just say, listen, let's work together and teach these guys. Mm -hmm. If all you do is put in the education piece of it, we're making major leaps and bounds forward. You know? So I think that's, I mean, the, that's a very long winded version of it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And I think too, when you say that, that's very much how I am about um, early education of it too. Uh, talking about it in schools because, you know, yeah. with, with gaming, and things like that. Like these, these people that build these machines, these, these slot machines and, and these things, they're focusing on the games that our kids are playing. Everybody else's kids. Right. I don't have kids, but everybody else's kids are playing. And they're making these machines, you know, more like enticing to a younger generation mm-hmm. so that whenever mm-hmm. maybe they're old enough to gamble or shoot, I've talked to people that don't even have to be old enough to gamble to get in there. Right. But, you know, they're, they're like, oh, you know, kind of like, triggers this nostalgia or something like that. And my biggest thing, and and when I've asked, why don't we have some type of early education talk, you know, because they talk about drugs and alcohol in school, the biggest, most quickest response is we don't have time in the curriculum. Every single time it will be, there's no time in the curriculum. There's no time Mm -hmm. in the curriculum, you know, and especially like during COVID when I was bringing this up with, with people in our state, it was like, well, because of COVID, you know, things are are different and there's, and, but they still take, you know, that 30 minutes or that hour to talk about drugs and alcohol. Why can't you break out just 10 minutes of that and talk about gambling addiction? And it was just like, I mean, it's just crickets. You're met with crickets. Like it's because. And a lot of, and I've been met with, well, younger generation is going to have a hard time connecting with older generation, talking about gambling addiction. And I'm like, who cares? Talk about it. Just talk about it. It doesn't matter if they connect in that moment. It might be something that I still remember the drug programs in school. Like it didn't, Mm -hmm. I wasn't affected by addiction growing up. So it wasn't necessarily something I connected with in the moment, but I still remember the dare t-shirts and those types of programs. So it's just like, Make it a program that that even if they don't connect with at the moment, it's something that sticks in their head. Like, oh, gambling addiction is real. Gaming addiction is real. Like, yeah. it doesn't have to be this full-on production. It's just take some time and invest in our kids. Will it help? And, and you I, don't know. Yeah, and that's exactly the point. That's exactly where I was going with this. You know, I remember when I first got into the military. I remember I was in a in a training course where I was in a building, barracks building with other people. And I remember the, the, the gentleman that was in charge of it, the, the petty officer that was in charge of it, because it was on a Navy base, the training I was in, had a speech with us one time. And, and I just, it was the dumbest little thing, but it stuck with me for the rest of my life, which is where he said, if you are out driving and you get in an accident, and you're not wearing your seatbelt, the military won't pay for your acts for your injuries. Right. I don't know why he said it. I don't know what prompted him to say it, but that I've worn a seatbelt for my entire life because of that one speech, right? You don't know who you're going to reach when you sit there and you say, listen, these are the signs and symptoms of a gambling problem. They're written right out. Pull out the DSM-5, pull out the GA book, pick five out of those 20 questions, right? Absolutely. You know, and just, just say, are you gambling more than maybe you thought you normally would, right? Uh, are you starting to gambling with increasing amounts of money? Does it feel like you're spending more than you normally would? Um, are you starting to maybe hide it a little bit from your friends and family saying, no, no, I'm going to be here, but you're actually over here, you know, and and even to say, don't answer these questions out loud. Just think while I'm asking these questions, are these things happening? And if multiple of these things are happening, maybe this is something you want to explore. 
And you don't know the person you're going to reach by doing that. You know, you don't know. But if you don't do it at all, you know, was it Wayne Gretzky who said you miss 100% of the chances you don't take? Yeah. Right? If you never put it in front of anybody, it's never going to, quote, unquote, be an issue. But eventually, this is going to reach a point where they, where your communities, the military, whatever it is, can't ignore it anymore. Put your systems in place now before it's too late. Right. Very much so. I look at the, yeah, I look at the UK now, and the UK has an active program of guys going into schools now and talking to kids in schools about gambling as a problem. Amazing. Right. They're doing but so well. The over UK there. is already at a point where it's so saturated that it's almost more reactionary now than it was proactive. Thank God they're doing it. Don't get me wrong. Thank goodness they're doing it. But it reached a point of it being reactive. Let's do it while there's still some level of proactive here before it gets that bad. Because now you're going to have to spend a lot of money treating people. You know, let's spend the money educating them and reduce the amount of money we're going to spend treating them because those one or two or three people might say, oh, I, maybe I should do something now while, while I still can. You know, absolutely. I don't know. It, it just it. It baffles me, you know, and I guess it baffles me because of my 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 lens, my perspective. You know, I, I view it from a the perspective of a person who is in recovery for an addiction that almost ended my life several times and has ended relationships and almost ended another one. That's, that's probably not probably is probably the most important relationship of my life. Right. So I have that lens and that perspective, but you know, the people sitting there making policy don't see it from that perspective. And that's, you know, our job is, is to hopefully get them to see it at least a little bit from that perspective at least in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And I think too, um, with, you know, like early education and things like that, um, it's very, it's very similar, especially in a state like mine, where I think we have 143 casinos. I'm in Oklahoma. We have Mm -hmm. 143 casinos. And a lot of these casinos, you know, you can bring your kids in, go to the restaurants, um, shoot the biggest one down on the Texas border has bowling alleys, movie theaters. So it ends up being a Vegas wow. style thing where you can bring your kids, they've got activities, you've got activities. Mm. But what I remember catching me the most is when I was gambling is seeing the kids walk through, you'd have to walk through the casino floor to get mm. to the restaurant. And I would just mm. see these kids just like wondered eyes, you know, just looking around. And, and of course they're hearing all this excitement and, you know, so it's already like planting that little seed of like, Oh, this can be fun when I get older. Like, look at these people are so excited and look, they're winning money. And, you know, so I, I, it's, it's just like the earlier that we can talk about this. And for me, when you talked about hiding it, that should have been the biggest trigger. The biggest sign for me was when people asked me what I was doing. I'd be like, Mm -hmm. I'm running errands. I refused to tell people that I was going to the casino. I hit it constantly but there was a yep. time in my life I didn't. There was a time in my life where I'm like, ah, I'm going to go to the casino. It's Friday night. You know, I'm single. Like, but then it was just like I'm running errands because then I started going Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, yeah. Sunday night. You know, and so it's just like, yeah. So if we could just kind of talk about those those things, and even if you don't have a gambling problem, you come across somebody who has, you sit down and you talk with your kids about it. Mm-hmm. And say, look, this could be, especially if they're gaming or doing these, there's just so many, there's so many opportunities to have a conversation. Um, yeah. And so yeah. I think it's important. Well, to now, with, now, it. with, now with smartphone technology and the ability now, and with a lot of states coming online with this, 
the ability to gamble right on your phone, um, yeah. you know, has just, I don't know, it's, it's mind boggling the amount of access that we have to the ability to gamble at all ages, at all ages, kids games on your phone now are set up casino style. Yep. It's just, it's amazing. And the fact that there's casinos and delis, gas stations, like, yeah. It's like they're, they're setting us up to not even have a chance, you know, a lot of that. So I think education at the earliest form is going to be our biggest tool. I do have a question, though, I did write down. OK, so you said these slot rooms were on the bases, right? Or mm-hmm. U.S. bases, correct? Correct. So is this a common feature or is it just specific to South Korea? No, no, it's very common in different places in the world. Japan, Okinawa, Germany. Um, I, you know, it's just a lot of the the bases, international bases that have been around for a while have these slot rooms in them as part of their morale, welfare and recreation programs, which is they, they collect money to help families go on like weekend trips. Um, you know, it's a great morale, welfare and recreation is a great program. Don't misunderstand me. They provide a lot of things for families to do outside of their lives in the military. Right. Mm-hmm. The issue I have is these guys. Um, and I don't remember the exact number, but I know that it's, it's like a seven figure number that they make annually on these machines and that not one penny of that goes back into education, screening, or treatment, not one penny. Um, it's a huge amount of money they make off these machines, which I'm glad they're doing for the morale, welfare, and recreation side of it, but take a tiny bit of that and invest it back in, Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you go into these rooms and it doesn't take long, and I've talked to multiple people who said the same thing, it doesn't take long to realize who the people who are hooked are in these rooms. It doesn't take long because these aren't giant casinos. They're just their rooms, you know, that are the size of maybe a bar. All right. If you walk into a bar enough times, you know who the guys are who are there every single day. Yeah. Right. And who maybe are hooked. It's the same thing in these rooms. And it doesn't take long to realize this is a problem. So let's help these guys. Let's take a little bit of that money. I'm not saying take the slot rooms out. They're a great form of entertainment for the 90 plus percent of people who can do it safely. You know, I think it's a great thing. But for the, you know, the 1% of us who are severely addicted and the other four to 5% who are on their way, give us some education, screening and treatment out of it. It's not going to cost you all of your money to do it. Take a tiny little chunk of it and, and give it back. Yeah. And I imagine that the programs or the people that receive that money would would probably be disheartened to know that it may have came at the cost of, of somebody's career or somebody's family life or something like that. If, you know, I imagine they would, they would bulk at that a little bit. So that is an interesting. um, Yeah. I would hope anyway. I mean, you know, again, (laughs) who knows? I, I don't sit on that side of the table, so I couldn't tell you, but, you know, I just know that from this side, it just looks like, you know, it would be so easy to take a tiny little bit of that and just reinvest it into taking care of these guys. Absolutely. Um, okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about fall in the podcast. Um, this is, this is a great, another, another great, I think I'm like halfway in on your podcast because I had a list. So, um, I, it's just, it's just enthralling to hear these stories. It, on any, in any form, you know, because mm-hmm. no matter the story, like you said, there's always going to be a piece of connection. It doesn't mm-hmm. even matter the addiction. Okay. So you're, there's going to, there's a commonality there of just something mm-hmm. else had control of us. Something else made, 
made choices or changed the way that we thought. Um, and I think we started talking about this before we recorded about how coming out of the military, a lot of the people I know came out with alcohol addiction, severe mm-hmm. alcohol mm-hmm. addiction. Um, I'm not going to say everybody that comes out of the military comes out like that, but, but it's, it's not, there's no shame. There's no stigma right. attached to that. But but there's no conversation. I don't think I've ever heard a conversation of military and gambling addiction ever. So I love the fact that you're doing this podcast and that you're talking about this. Um, is there is there anything that you want to tell somebody that's listening, you know, about the resources or things, programs that they can try and connect with? <clears throat> yeah, what I want to say is that, first of all, you're not alone. Um, you know, we're, we're out here. We're here. Uh, I also want to tell you that if you feel like you can't talk to anybody because, because of the the fear of retribution, again, you have resources available to you. Um, and you know, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. Um, you know, on Twitter, I'm at falling podcast. Uh, my, my, my email is falling podcast at gmail.com. And I can refer you to resources to be able to help you. Um, there are, multiple, multiple problem gambling councils throughout states, throughout the United States. And most of them have access to resources that you can have access to. Um, So, you know, it's out there, it's available to you and you don't have to have this fear of being caught doing it because we're going to get you the help you need. And we're going to be able to do it confidentially for you until we can get to the point where it becomes more acceptable and you can do it without that fear of retribution. I hate to even have to say this. I do. I hate to even have to put it this way, but please understand the help is there for you. Okay. You have the ability to salvage your life and your career and your family. Um, You know, I've heard enough stories of service members whose families have been devastated, uh, marriages dissolved, loss of access to kids, you know, forget the careers. Um, The destruction of family alone is enough to say enough is enough. We need to do something about this. But then you put in 5, 10, 15 years into a career, and all of a sudden that career is destroyed because of an addiction that had you known about it, and had you known there was help available, maybe you could have maybe you could have brought yourself back, right? Please let me say this again. Help is available, and we can get you to it, all right? Reach out, say something. That's what I want to say. Yeah, and you can, you can do it confidential. You can keep your anonymity. You can keep... You know, it's it's not something that you talk about it and all of a sudden your whole world breaks open. It's something that you can you can work on quietly, as quietly as you want, or as loudly as you want, right? And I think too, when you were talking about, you know, how you went to all these different places while you were in the military and nobody could put a name to it. Even for myself, non-military, I didn't understand what I was going through either. As far as addiction, I didn't understand that what was going on with me was addiction. And it's so I can understand that if people are seeking help for problems because they're, they're gambling, but nobody's putting a name to it. I can see where it's hard to um, to get the help that you need. Yeah. And it's funny because I worked with a guy. Um, I've been working with a guy recently who. I asked him in a group to introduce himself and he told his name and said, I'm a degenerate gambler. And I said, just, just stop right there. Stop. And I said, we, we need to remove that language. You know, that's the language. If you want to call yourself that in the privacy of your own home, that's your choice. 
But when we're sitting amongst a group like this, we're not degenerate gamblers. We're people who struggle with a gambling problem and are trying to get healthy. You know, the more we set ourselves up with that mentality that we're a bunch of degenerates, the more we're not going to move forward in terms of, of, you know, taking that stigma away and reducing that stigma. So it just, it just was interesting. And he genuinely wants help. He genuinely is doing the work to move forward and get help. Um, but still has that mentality of I'm a degenerate. And I don't think that that's uncommon. No, I think you're very right. I think, and, and that's the mindset. And I, I've talked a lot about this with a lot of different people. If maybe the stigma hadn't been so quiet when they started the programs back in the late fifties, you know, like, um, because even when you think of alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, in a, those different things, they're not really that anonymous. I mean, they, they talk about it, they advertise it, they, they say it's available, whereas Gamblers Anonymous is strictly no advertising policy. So it's like, it's just, it's just not talked about because of the fact that during that period, you were considered degenerate. It was considered a moral flaw to, be, to have a gambling problem or a financial situation or, or whatever, and it was extremely frowned upon, whereas being an alcoholic has always been kind of like, yeah, there's, there's going to be a stigma attached to people who do alcohol and drugs, but it's not the same. It doesn't hold you back in the same capacity as being a gambling addict. A gambling addict can hold you back in your job futures. Your, your, there's just still so much attached to it. So I'm, I'm thankful when I hear voices. I'm so new to the community. So I, I am so thankful when I come across people who have been talking about it and who have been mm-hmm. active. And, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you coming on today and talking with us. Well, let me, let me tell you how much I appreciate you because what you're done, what you're doing is making a difference. Um, you know, what you're doing between this and, you know, bet free life with Brian, um, you're, you're out there and you're putting it out there and you're telling our stories and you're bringing people into the fold and letting them know they're not alone. So your voice is critical and I'm, I'm extremely appreciative that we're out here, that, that this community is here. You know, this is a family. To me, Absolutely. this is a family. So thank you for what you do as well. It's an amazing community to be a part of. And I wish I had known about it 11 months ago, you know, uh, because I actually started my, my journey a year ago in January mm-hmm. and I didn't make it very far because I tried to do it on my own. And if I had known mm-hmm. that this community was out there and could back me, you know, it would have, would have helped me sooner, but we can't change those things, right? And I'm glad I found right. it when I did. I'm glad I, I got involved when I did. So, all right. Well, again, thank you for your time. All right. Thank you.